Welcome to the important part, investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Happy January, everybody, and welcome back to The Important Part. This is our first episode of the new year with a guest and not a bonus episode. It's been a pretty bumpy January so far. Markets trying to find their footing here in a new environment as we embark on a tightening cycle, a quantitative tightening cycle, the end of QE, the beginning eventually of QT, and rate hikes to come at some point. Since the recording of the last episode, which was the bonus episode of Q&A. Again, thank you, everybody, for your wonderful questions. The Fed has continued to signal that tightening is on the docket, and markets have continued to move their expectations forward for when we're going to get that first rate hike. And now, even some conversation, some people floating out there that that first hike will be bigger than 25 basis points. So what I think the story is going to be this year, and it has already been, is that sector allocation matters. And when you look at all the different indices, it's no longer just a broad index story. It is a sector allocation story. Also, pay attention to the Russell 2000 value versus the Russell 2000 growth. The spread between those two indexes is huge right now, especially for just a few weeks into this new year. Another thing that we are seeing pop up and I think will keep popping up as the year goes on is international markets. And that's for a couple different reasons. The biggest reason being that monetary policy and central banks are diverging around the globe. And that hasn't been the case for a really long time. So we actually are seeing now China actually embarking on an easing cycle at the same time that many other major central banks are embarking on a tightening cycle. So we're going to see a lot of divergence across the board on currencies. We're going to see divergence on when the market reacts to those different moves in monetary policy. And we're going to see divergence across the board on how consumers react and what the spending and production cycles look like in those countries. Now, I would say right now, I'm not finding EM all that attractive. I think there are a lot more risks than rewards to be had. But as the year goes on, and as China probably continues to ease further in order to stimulate its economy, you could see a little bit of a bounce back later in the year. So I wouldn't count it out for the entirety of 2022. I've mentioned before, I do also see a nice opportunity in Europe as travel starts to pick back up, as people have to pay more attention to valuations in this tightening cycle. Europe offers good valuation opportunities. It offers an attractive uh, sector allocation and sector makeup just in the broad indices alone. And it's been a long time. Europe has this consumer now that has a lot of pent-up demand, much like the U.S. consumer had pent-up demand, that it's ready to deploy. And I think it's going to start deploying that much more in 2022. So what I would say going to the end of this month, the beginning of February, and maybe up until we release the next episode of the podcast, is that this is probably not the end of the volatility. And it's a reason why I talked about low volatility ETFs at the beginning of the year. Probably not the end of the volatility, and it's it's probably still yet to be seen all of the different uncertainties that the Fed needs to iron out about the pace of tightening, 
the timing of rate hikes and hope that we can orchestrate that in a fashion that the market can digest more gracefully along the way. Also in the middle of earnings season right now, so that's another thing to watch in a year where fundamentals really, really matter. Fundamentals matter, valuations matter. And the other thing that I would also mention is that we're still trained to buy these dips, but those dip buyers are not as strong as they were in 2021, and it's not lasting as long as it did in 2021. So there's still strength under the surface of the market, and there's still appetite for equities. It's just to a lesser degree than it was last year. So I think we all need to set our expectations reasonably for the year and make sure that we have our portfolios allocated in the ways that are different and ready for a tightening cycle. Okay, so this episode, I'm super excited to share with you, taking a bit of a different approach and talking about venture capitalism. Venture capitalism and all the VC funds have really taken over. And especially in New York City, where I'm seeing this firsthand, there are venture capitalists everywhere. (laughs) It's something that has become a really buzzworthy topic. So we are talking today to Ita Ekpudam, who is going to tell us about her venture capital journey and female-founded firms and the opportunities that she can find in that space and why it's such an exciting space to be in right now. And we're also going to talk about the different opportunities and some of the imbalances between how capital gets deployed in that industry. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to choose a firm to invest in and what kinds of things go into that analysis process. And you know what? It's a lot of things that an individual investor who's choosing stocks can also apply to their process. Ita is a partner at venture capital firm Gingerbread Capital, which backs high-growth female-founded companies. Her mission is to engage, educate, and elevate the next generation of successful women business leaders and investors. In 2014, Ita founded Tigris Ventures, an advisory and consulting firm that helps women scale their businesses and hone their leadership skills. Ita also served as venture partner at Plum Alley Investments, where she oversaw investment opportunities and pipeline for high-growth, female-founded, and gender-diverse startups. She has held positions at Goldman Sachs, TravelClick, and American Express. Ita has an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and a bachelor's in psychology from Princeton. So let's get to the interview. Ita, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to have you and have this conversation. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Liz. Thanks for having me. Get us started with some of the background. Your work at Gingerbread Capital. What's Gingerbread's mission? Absolutely. So Gingerbread Capital is a VC firm started by Linnea Roberts. And Linnea is a longtime Wall Street person. And she was almost 30 years on Wall Street, former co-head of tech banking at Goldman Sachs. And then she retired. And like every Goldman partner I know, lasted three months retired. And she was like, I'm not ready to be a retired person. But one of the things that she also realized was that in those 30 years, she'd never made a private investment. Even though she'd taken companies public, she'd gotten companies acquired by some of the big tech companies that we know today, she had never as an individual made a private investment. And so once she retired, she made her first investment. And that's when the aha moment came for her of like, how else can I play in this space? Where is there a need? And the need was around capital going to women entrepreneurs. And so we focus on backing female-founded and gender-diverse teams at the late seed Series A to like Series B and C stage. The female-founded firms and the idea of 
uh, the availability of capital for certain firms and and some of the numbers that we'll talk about later on maybe the uneven availability of capital for certain types of firms. Let's talk about what brought you to this moment. Why did you choose to partner up with Gingerbread? Why is this such an important thing that's near and dear to your heart? Absolutely. So I actually started my career on Wall Street as well at Goldman. I was a banker and then I traded preferred stock, which is interesting because I've come full circle. And in the startup world, preferreds are the instrument of choice. But, you know, I started working with publicly traded multinational companies issuing, and I worked on the fixed income side, issuing debt and preferreds. I liked it. I didn't love it. And I think that's one of the keys. And the arc of my career has been aligning the things that I like with the things that I love and I'm good at. So after I left Goldman, I went to American Express and then I worked at a private equity owned tech company. And that's when I realized that I wanted to be at the beginning of companies when they're starting and when they're growing. And also, you know, around the 2013, 2014, I was reading these narratives of like, women don't want to be CEOs, women want lifestyle companies, and they don't want to deal with the BS of business. And those are not the women that I know have worked with, have gone to college with, business school, all of these things. And so I was like, that that's where I want to spend my time. I want to spend my time getting those women that I know are driven and have big ideas, enabling them to get those businesses off the ground through the form of capital, which is the currency that you need to make any idea successful. Right. Well, and then it's it's a question of, all right, are those opportunities out there? I think another thing that we need to do in this episode is debunk some of those myths. Women do want senior level jobs. They're not all interested in a certain type of lifestyle. And they have really great ideas for starting companies. So another thing that that I want the listeners to remember is that after the COVID pandemic began, we saw this trend of new business formation, and it just took off. We are at record high levels of new business formation on a monthly basis, still seeing more than 400,000 applications a month. So there are a ton of ideas being put into play out there and probably a lot of them female-driven ideas. Well, that was the case even before the pandemic. You know, Amex has been tracking this. They have an annual survey, and women were the number one drivers of starting new businesses in this country, and that's been going back many, many years. And I think it's part of that same dynamic of when you look up in a lot of corporate America, you you know, or in using the banking world, right? You start off 50-50 analyst classes, you come in together, and then as for whatever reason, as you move up, that kind of gender parity diminishes. And I think some of the times when, you know, women think about it, it's like, well, let me take my future into my own hands. And I'm going to bet on myself and go out and try to build a company where I see myself, I see other people like me and build a culture that I want to be a part of. Yeah, it's about connecting the people that are driven, the people that have these great ideas with the opportunities to bring those to life, right? And in this particular instance, we're talking about the blank space that needed to be filled of female entrepreneurs with incredible ideas, incredible startups that they've already got somewhat of a track record in, just needing the funding to take them to the next round. And there is a big shift that's occurring. I mean, we've heard about this across media outlets. I think one of the things that is important to talk about is what we're seeing now in new business formation and what we're seeing in the startup space right now is the future of American business. Right. So things that are being started today are what are going to be 
what I'll call the next generation of blue chips. And if these companies are successful, the ideal life cycle is you start in the venture capital space, you end up going to IPO, maybe you IPO as a small or mid-cap company, you grow into a large-cap company. If success begets success, you become a mega-cap company. That's how all of those startups began. Why do you think VC or venture capital has taken off so much? Well, I mean, I think when you think about the press coverage that you've seen about venture-backed companies in the last 10 years, when you think of the stories of the Ubers and and Rent the Runways and things like that, where companies in the span of, you know, five to 10 years have started from zero to having exit and liquidity opportunity uh, where they're multi-billion dollar entities. And, you know, a lot of the investors got in. If you're getting in at the like seed stage or series A, you're getting in when they, well, valuations right now in certain sectors are really, really crazy, but you could get in as low as say maybe 10 or $15 million. And, you know, if these exit and become unicorns at exit, your whatever amount you put in could end up returning you multiples upon multiples of that. And it's very difficult, unless you're a huge institutional investor, to make those kinds of returns in the public markets. The public markets do not move in the way where you can see that kind of appreciation and value in kind of a five to 10 year window where something that was 15 million becomes a billion. Right. Well, and companies are staying private longer, right, than they used to. So they come to the public market in a much more mature phase than they used to before. So I think that's a great point. Let's shift into the opportunity set of specifically female-founded companies and the availability of capital. Let's talk about what some of those stats are. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're lucky it's January because now we have the fresh stats from 2021. So actually, PitchBook just this week released this. So I will just give a recap of what the report was saying. So U.S. startups that were founded by women, solely women, raised $6.4 billion in 2021, which was a record. And that was 83% higher than 2020. But how much was raised total in venture-backed companies? $330 billion was raised in 2021. And that was also a record. So in context, that 6.4 billion is 1.9%. And that's the lowest level of capital raised by female-founded companies since 2016. So it's actually gone down from five years ago. Okay, so here's my devil's advocate question. Were there opportunities to invest? Were were there equal opportunities to invest in female-founded companies versus male-founded companies? the stats in this country, more women are starting businesses than men are. So the rate of women starting companies is actually exceeding, but the venture capital industry historically has been a a male-led industry. 9% of VC partners that are are people like me, that are partners at VC funds, are women. People kind of can default to investing in the things that they know or the people that are like from the networks that they know. So if a network is coming with majority male investors and opportunity to get access to those investors, you talk to people that are like the guys in your network or you you see deal flow from the guys in the network. The women's companies are out there, but maybe getting in front of those investors that are writing the checks is less so. But I think another interesting thing is, so that was all female founded. So gender diverse teams raised 55.9 billion last year out of that 330. So that's 17%. So total, if there's a woman as part of it is roughly 19% 
of all the $330 billion went to a company that had a woman as part of the founding team. So that's still a saying that 81% is going to companies that are just men. And the U.S. is 50-50 population, and more women are starting businesses than men, so. Yep, we've got some work to do. (laughs) We do, we do. We've also got work to do on making sure that the capital is evenly dispersed and that the opportunity set is, is evenly dispersed. And so that's kind of why Gingerbread exists, right? Like, we hope that there'll be a time when the, you know, we believe the arbitrage of going after female-founded and gender-diverse teams is, like, nullified because everybody just has a great portfolio that has a mix of both in it. But that's not the case. And so that leads to opportunities where you can find great companies. And sometimes they're not getting the types of multiples in in valuation that you see in all male founded teams. So to us, that's an advantage, right? Because again, if you get in at 15, and it ends up going out, you know, exiting at a billion, you look at a company like Stitch Fix, I think they that she raised maybe 40 million before she IPO. would That's very drastically different to if you look at the peer set of companies that were founded around the same time from all male teams. So I I think, again, just kind of objectively looking at the data of the amount of capital raised, the valuations before exit, that's an interesting way to kind of look at is it is it just talk or is there proof in in the data? You know, and and something I want to say really quickly, another another myth I get asked all the time about what it's like to be a woman in a male-dominated field. And I've always been really honest about the fact that, yeah, it's a male-dominated field. And you know what? A lot of my very important mentors who I've had all the way throughout my career continue to have today and continue to meet today are men. And they're amazing. I I think that we all want to live in harmony (laughs) in this industry. And I think we can all do it together. I agree. And I mean, you know, you and I both started out on Wall Street in finance. And given the gender dynamics there, absolutely, I agree. Some of my biggest champions, I think of one in particular to this day, is a man. And I value that relationship so much because I've I've learned so much. And you get a point of view that I wouldn't from, uh, from other sources. So having that mix of both that you can talk to... And- when I needed to understand how do the dynamics of the industry work, compensation, all of the things that we know women end up doing and getting less of, I went to them, my male friends because I didn't want to put myself at a disadvantage. I wanted to have all the information on both sides. So I agree with you that having both genders is really important. All right, let's talk about what makes female-founded businesses different. And First, I want to know, are there particular characteristics? And I, and I realize I'm, I'm asking you to be a little gender biased here, but are there particular characteristics that make them different and make female founders different from male founders? And then walk me through an example of a decision to invest in one of these early startups. Well, I mean, I think any good startup founder is somebody that has identified a problem and they they are like, this doesn't work for me, or I could do this better, or there's a better way. And they question the status quo. To take that leap is really scary. And you are going out on yourself and hoping that you build the foundation under you that then grows into a big entity. So I think women in particular, and the ones in our portfolio, when I think about them, they have a lot of grit, they have a lot of resilience, and they have the ability to do a lot with a lot less. When we look at some of the, from the standpoint of capital, the traction with which their companies show and that we see even at early stages before they've raised a lot of money 
is a lot more, like the hurdle is higher of what it takes to be seen as competent, qualified, and women have gotten used to just like, let me show you what I've got. Let me show you that this is real. We've got customers, we've got revenues and a path to really scaling this. And I think a lot of our founders in our portfolio, they really gave the the adage of like, you've got to survive until you can thrive. And they were used to being, you know, not having a lot of cushion to deal with. We've been excited to see some of our companies coming out of the pandemic in just a really strong position where they are ready to grow and ready to take on the capital that will just put the gasoline on the fire. One of the things I was thinking as you were saying that is you have two choices as a female. If you go into something and think to yourself, oh, I, I hate that it it's going to take me so much more to prove this, right? I have to try so much harder to prove my worth in this particular arena to get investors or whatever the case may be you're going to be discouraged. Or, and this is what I choose, you can go into it and say, okay, I have to prove a little bit more. Watch me. I'll do it. That's fine. Right? Challenge accepted. And it sounds like those are the types of founders that you're looking for. Absolutely. Because there will be challenges. There is no startup that was just like, oh, I had an idea. Next thing you know, I'm a billionaire. No. Mm-hmm. That's just... <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if that's how it worked, though? We just write it on a napkin. Yes. And <laughs> Everybody ta-da! would do it if it was that easy, you know? But it's just not. And so you've got to be, you know, know what you're doing, like care about it enough and be willing to kind of put those sleepless nights and hours in because it, it's a roller coaster. It's like, oh, really great highs today. I crushed it. I am going to be a billionaire. And then like two days later, something comes and you're like, oh, God, will we make it until tomorrow? Oh, I'm eating beans for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so for some people, that is not a comfortable situation. You have to know yourself when you think about making that leap, because if you're not in it for that kind of roller coasterness. Like, don't do it because it is going out on a limb to try to figure that out. But for some people, and if you believe in something enough or like a problem that you just can't get out of your mind, this could be the right path for you. So give me an example of of somebody or a team where you decided to invest in the company and why. I Actually, I have a good one because it kind of pulls my past career into this. So after I left Goldman and before I started my consulting and went into this kind of venture world, I was a product manager. So I sat in that seat and it, there was a lot of manual things being used, like Excel and all these kind of stuff. And that was like 10 years ago. And so a friend of mine in the ecosystem sent me a company and said, hey, there's this woman out here that is starting a company that is building out a better product management suite that looks at it from a holistic point of view. I talked to her and I told her what I was thinking. She goes, honestly, that's still the case. A decade later, a lot of that is still in place. And what I liked about her, why I knew she was, I knew what she was talking about. The founders, her name is Becky Flint and her company is called Dragon Boat. So she was one of the product lead at PayPal when they went from five countries to over 200. And we now know PayPal is a multi-billion dollar company. She went on to three other private companies that have become unicorns each in that kind of same seat. She was like, you know what? I've been doing the same thing in each of these companies. There's a product here. And that's when she was like, I then decided to bet on myself and turn my ideas and my structure into a company. First of all, having experienced the problem myself, hearing from her that a decade later, a lot of these changes are still in place and that there is a solution. And then I demoed the product and I was like, oh my goodness, if I had had this 10 years ago, it would have been incredible. And so that was one where it was early, but we ended up, you know, coming in early and and co-investing alongside one of our LP funds. And 
they've gone, they're doing really well. This is going to be a company you're going to hear about in the next five to 10 years. I love that. I think another thing that that a lot of people assume is that women do start companies, but they start companies in fashion or healthcare or education. I did not expect you to say something about product management. And that's one of the things I say when people come and look at our portfolio is on our website. You see both. You see consumer. We have great consumer brands like Primary Kids, which is a a fantastic clothing for children. And then you have something like Becky or you have one of our other SaaS companies like Content Stack, which is doing headless CRM. Like this is what the spectrum of what women are innovating on. And each of those are multi-billion dollar spaces. And to, to pigeonhole and say that women are only doing one kind of innovation is just not true. Yeah. So let's make sure that we give it, give the individual investor a clear idea of how they can put that into place in their own portfolio. So when you're thinking about evaluating a company for investment, number one, obviously trying to find a problem that was solved by creating this business. It sounds like, too, the scalability. So thinking about the scalability of the business, what's the growth potential like? What does the rest of the industry look like? What does the competitive landscape look like? Who's the founder? What are they like? There's also opportunities now that I want you to talk about for individual investors to invest in things in early stages. So the Jobs Act gave us a lot more opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So venture capital and the venture world used to be really limited to just people that were accredited investors. And to be an accredited investor, it means that as an individual, you make 200000 or more for the past two years, historically, past two tax years, and expect to make that or more going forward. Or as a couple, as a spouse, 300000 similarly, in the last two years and, and into the future. So if you didn't meet those criteria, you could not invest in private companies. So you couldn't have invested in like Rent the Runway or you couldn't have invested in in Uber at in the early stages. So with the passage of the Jobs Act under the Obama administration, they changed it such that individuals who are non-accredited investors can now also invest in private companies. And so the criteria of how much those individuals can invest is that if either your annual income or your net worth is less than $107,000 during any 12-month period, you can invest up to the greater of $2,200 or 5% of that your lesser income or net worth. So if you make less than $107,000, you too can invest in a private company. It just is capped at how much you can make and invest into it. And so there's now platforms out there. Which is good. Most startups fail, and I need to be very clear with that. Most startups fail, and this is why you see venture capital firms create a portfolio. They don't just like, it's not Vegas where you put it all and ride it all on one company. That is a ticket to losing all your money because you build a portfolio and you hope that one out of 10 will not only return the money and return the fund, but also make money on top of that. And so that's why when you say diversify, like you build out a diverse portfolio, that's part of it. Also, for individual investors, do not invest money that you can't afford to lose. Because since I just said, most startups fail, put money in there so that 5% if you're making less than $107,000, that 5% should not be your rent. It should not be your college tuition. 
It should be money that maybe you've saved and you have disposable income. Then you're like, you know what? I've got some in stocks. I've got some in bonds. I've uh, maxed out my 401k and I still have something, you know, I've got my emergency fund and all of those things. And I now I still have a little bit on the side. This is where you can then start saying, okay, well, what industries do I care about? Where do I think will be in about five to 10 years could be really big. And then I'd say, you know what, go go double your toe in it because there's some platforms, I think, where you can invest as little as like $100. So it, it now that like the way we can do in equities and you can buy, you know, five, 10, you know, you can start doing that in private companies. And, you know, I think that is just along the same theme in the same vein that we've been seeing since March of 2020, where the individual investor has come in and said, you know what, it was unfair, or we felt like it was unfair before. Institutions had an upper hand, or accredited investors had an upper hand. We couldn't participate in the same ways. We didn't have the same information available to us. And that landscape is changing. And it's it's also changing because of so much interest in the venture capital space. The friction is being removed because of technology. Access is being democratized. So just like retail investors, your grandma can now invest in any stock if they can just create a brokerage account. Like that's starting to happen in the world of private companies. And you can now vote with your dollars in private companies the way you do in public companies. Yep. I hope my grandma is not listening and just investing in any stock she wants. Call me first, grandma. Let's talk about it. If you have a Liz in the family, she should definitely call you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Ita, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I just want to cover some of the key takeaways from that interview. There was so much shared, but some of the really important ideas that came out of it for me is that access to these early investments is much more widespread. So the Jobs Act of years ago made it available to more individual investors to get in on the front end. And, and Ida talked about that a lot. You can also look at companies like SoFi. We offer IPO investing for our members. So there's a lot more access that is had now by individual investors to get in in the early days of these opportunities. Secondly, venture capitalism matters right now because it's the future of business. It's the companies that will be bigger in business down the road. And it's the future leaders of America. So it's definitely something to pay attention to. It's not something that we just wait and see what happens. It's, it's really getting in on the early days of what the future looks like. And lastly, this is my takeaway. It's not a zero-sum game. We can spread the capital out across the opportunity set, across all types of borders, and work together to advance innovation. I loved that episode. I think that it offered a lot of new insights. It offered a lot of interesting insights and a different angle than we normally take. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you learned a lot. And I will bring you the next episode soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at sofi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Young Strat. The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. 
Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.